As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Total Soccer Show and our Euro 2020 coverage, day six. In St. Petersburg, we saw something that some of us have already witnessed in the past. Artem Juba whacking one off the post as Russia took a 1-0 win over their next-door neighbours. Finland in Baku, Wales were cosplaying as Australia, but they didn't go down under pressure from Turkey. And at the Stadio Olimpico, Italy and Switzerland put on a game of soccer that featured professional players, a ball, a modest crowd, some officials. I'm not sure what else happens because we're recording this intro just before kickoff of that one, but Italy won? Maybe they didn't, but probably did. Anyway, joining me today is a man who's removed all the Coke and beer bottles from his desk in front of him. It's Taylor Rockwell. I actually have for today specifically. Uh, that, that's really good timing because normally there are several Coke bottles in front of me. Less so beer bottles, more so whiskey bottles if the U.S. are playing poorly. <laughs> all that um, incident got me thinking of, Taylor. The incidents being with Cristiano Ronaldo and uh, Paul Pogba was it's a shame that Jamie Vardy's not here and doing press conferences because I can imagine him removing all of the <laughs> bottles and just putting like vodka and a bag of Skittles up in front of him. Like, that's better. It's that's port better. and Red Bull. Isn't that his drink? Or, or I imagine Jamie... Sorry, I know I haven't been introduced yet. And that's <laughs> <Who is> not, <laughs> <laughs> that is not podcast <laughs> etiquette. But uh, <laughs> sorry about that. But I imagine Jamie Vardy doing the old ho- uh, night in a hotel routine and just and and pocketing the bottles that are in front of him. You know, like people do with small soaps in hotels. That's exactly what he would do. I also appreciate Ryan that you are just getting less and less subtle with your Zuba references, and soon it's just going to be like Artem Zuba masturbation. Moving on. 
<laughs> well, you you just went there and laid it right on the table for us, Taylor. Thank you very much for that one. And, and for the record with Jamie Vardy, I think he, he did skittle-infused vodka, but he also does port as well. He has a complicated recovery routine. Let's, let's put it that way, shall <laughs> sure. we? Sure. Um, joining us also, a man you just heard from there. He hasn't quite decided whether he prefers Wales, golf, Madrid, or putting penalties in Rosie. It's Graham Rutherford. Hello. I mean, I definitely have decided what's what's bottom of that list, and it, and 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 it's Wales. I'm sorry, it's, it's just it's just Wales. But um, hello, how are you? Uh, very good. Let's dig into this a little <laughs> bit, Graham. Um, not not a fan of the Welsh in general. Not a fan of uh, you know them having a player who's better than any Scottish player. Uh, it's. It, I would like to say it's not jealousy, but it, it purely is jealousy. <laughs> I mean, football, soccer's not even their sport. They play rugby. That's what they play in Wales, and yet they're. Everyone in Scotland, all we talk about is football, and yet they're so much better at it than us. <sighs> and yet Sigh. you're still terrible at it, is the way you should have phrased that. But yes, yes, I get your sentiment there, Graham. Gra- Graham has basically acknowledged that Scotland has been friend-zoned by football, I think is what's happened there. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're interested in a relationship with Wales, less so Scotland. We'll see what happens in the future, but for now, we're going to focus on our time with Wales. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly what's happened. And let's also focus on our last uh, last uh, TSS presenter who we haven't introduced yet and who hasn't been rude and spoken before he's been introduced. Thank you very much. It's a man who doesn't think Wales manager Robert Page is a member of Led Zeppelin like I do every time I hear his name. It's Joe Lowry. I, I must admit, Ryan, that thought has never once crossed my mind. You are spot on there. I always assume he, it's Robert Page who's the manager and Jimmy Plant is his assistant and they're just like, they do Led Zeppelin concerts once they're finished with Wales. That's, that's, that's the way it goes in my head. Although he doesn't really look like a rock star. He looks like a pub landlord? J- John Paul Jones does sound like he could be a Welsh centre back. I think you're onto something true. here, right? That is true. Not I enough consonants imagine- in that name, Taylor. Come on. Come on now. <laughs> I can imagine a centre back called John Bonham as well. Yeah. yeah. They've got the whole Welsh thing going on. There we go. And they recorded a lot of albums in Wales. But I'm getting boring talking about ancient rock and roll, which Joe uh, probably has never even heard because he's, uh, he's, uh, he's in the right generation, not the old one, like uh, at least 50% of this podcast. I'm rambling. Let's talk about the soccer. Uh, let's go to the uh, first game of the day, a rivalry of sorts, Finland against Russia. These two t- countries very much sharing a border. Helsinki and St. Petersburg separated merely by the Gulf of Finland. Uh, Joe, I was expecting a golfing class for Finland today. Did we see it as our resident um, eagle, what is it, eagle owl expert? Yeah, eagle owl. Unfortunately, we we did kind of see it. I said on the end of yesterday's show that I thought Finland would win this game. I thought they were going to use the ball a little bit more and, and they would be able to break through Russia. None of that stuff happened. Russia controlled the ball from, from pretty much start to finish. No, no pun intended there. They made it really nice. hard for Finland to, thank you, Ryan. They made it really hard for Finland to break out. Finland was back defending in that 5-3-2 shape that they used in their first game. That's their defensive setup. But they did an okay job defending in a lot of moments, but because they defended so deep and were hesitant to push numbers forward on the counter, they, they had a hard time breaking out of Russia's counter pressure. And that's ultimately where the goal comes from for Russia. And that was the pattern that we saw over and over again throughout this game, Finland defending and just not being able to pose much of an attacking threat at all, really. Yeah, Taylor, um, Finland's been resisting Russian invasions for a long, long, long time, but they couldn't quite hold out here. What did you make of it? Uh, where I am on this one is essentially I think Russia and Turkey entered the ga- entered today's games 
like needing to answer some questions. And I think Russia answered some in a very good way. I think Turkey did the opposite of that. So where I am is essentially Russia. I can't tell if they were very bad against Belgium or Belgium are just that good that they made Russia look that bad. But I thought this was a much more coherent, logical, tactical Russia. It was reminiscent of that uh, Russia team that ran everywhere in 2018. And I think the game plan made a lot more sense with the back three. With Golovin and Marenchuk, Marenchuk, excuse me, much closer to Zuba, so he had somebody to knock the ball down four, or maybe multiple options if one of them was covered, but then they could combine really well, as they did, I believe, for the goal. So I think overall, it was a much more logical approach from Russia, and I think for Finland, they essentially did what we thought they would do, but then when Russia did find a way through, did get that goal, it then becomes about finding second options or secondary plans of attack, and I don't think they really had much uh, on offer in that regard. Graham, um, your initial takes on this game from, from the outset or all the way through it, it seemed like there was a lot of robust tackles going on, um, a, f- a few injuries here and there and, and occasionally a bit of soccer in between. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the, the easiest game on the eye. I have to say the first um, five to ten minutes was a little bit of a, I thought, a bit of a, a false dawn, if you want to call it that. For, for Finland, there was, a, there was a high press from them really early on. They, they were setting traps for Russia and, and that's where the... the they get the chance for the the disallowed goal for uh, Poyan Palo with with another with another header that's obviously this one is is disallowed. Why why can't we just let Finland celebrate a goal at this tournament for goodness sake? <laughs> um, but it was oh, yeah. it, and it was a little bit of a shaky start for Russia. They they were quite defensively slack early on, but they they tightened up and I thought their goal um, Maranchuk was pretty much there. Their defense, sorry, their attacking game plan in a nutshell, which was pretty much get the ball into one of the technicians, the, uh, either Golovin or, or Maranchuk, play off Zuba uh, as the apex of the attack and, and, and get a shot away. And I thought that was the biggest difference. I think it was Taylor already referenced it. The biggest difference was getting players in around Zuba and, and, and playing off him. And there was just a lot more pockets of space for Maranchuk and for, for Golovin to, to operate in. And, and I thought that Maranchuk for me was probably the, the best player on the pitch and the biggest difference between the two teams. So was this a significantly better Russian performance than their opener, do we think, uh, Joe? Oh, absolutely. Right. Belgium Belgium was in cruise control and still dominated that game and, and scored three on Russia. I, I wasn't convinced that Russia was going to be able to break through Finland's defensive shape. And, and for me, that was the biggest question surrounding them in this game. And that they did that in not not convincing fashion, but they created some chances. And, and I, I love, Taylor, you and Graham have both highlighted that, that pattern of Zuba and Golovin and Maranchuk all being closer together. It was this three three the back shape from from Russia and then they had the wing backs high and wide and then it was almost a diamond shape in midfield it's very similar to the shape that Poland used in their first group stage game where they had one number six and then they had the two number eights Golovin on the left and then Ozdoyev on the right and then they had Maranchuk as the 10 underneath Zuba I thought that shape worked better for them not they weren't dominant but it was a much better performance than their than their game against Belgium which is kind of understandable given the difference in the opponent. I agree with that, Joe. And then I would add, I think they made a smart choice in bringing on uh, Diviev instead of Semyonov. My assumption there would be that Diviev has a bit more pace than Semyonov. I think certainly has a few more years uh, to go. So I think he was then able to handle the the sort of Russia stepping up uh, further up the field and and playing a pretty high line. I think they could then afford that with more of speed from both Diviev and uh, Baranov, who sat in and was the other center back. And so I think that allowed them to send those numbers forward and have a more sustained 
attacking presence than certainly they were able to get against Belgium. But I think they would have been able to get get against Finland if they had stuck with the same approach as their first game. We generally have been couching a lot of this analysis of this tournament so far, gents, in positivity. But is there an argument, Graham, that both of these teams are a bit rubbish? <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly. I think so. I mean, I, th- I think this was this was a lot better from Russia. I think it's fair to say that, that the first game they were really poor. Finland didn't offer much at, at all for me. I thought Timo Puki was was pretty poor throughout. I thought Glenn Kamara had a decent first half and was as kind of was kind of doing that Angolo Kante thing that he does of of sweeping up some of the play and then going on a, a little bit of a run to relieve the pressure on his own. But anytime he would work his way into a channel, there was there wasn't a lot of support and. Uh, Pian Paolo's game is very much based around getting on the end of service into the middle, and there wasn't a lot of service. So yeah, I think Finland. This this for me was a much maybe stating the obvious here, given what happened in their first match against Denmark. But th- this was a, a a much clearer indication of what they are and who they are as a team. Russia, I think they, they, this this as I say, this was better. They do have something in them. One of the things that impressed me um, in their performance was how they absorbed uh, Mario Fernandez going off after only 26 yeah. minutes because what was clear to me early on in that first half was he was a really, really key way of the way that they were playing. He was pretty much playing as a, almost as a forward at times. I know, I know that's not too uncommon for a wing back like him, but he was pl- pretty much playing it as their highest, uh, furthest forward player, making late runs into the box. He was getting on the end of headers and, and, and really making it difficult for Finland to pick up opponents. He comes off after 25 minutes and the, the player that they, they bring on in his place, which I have lost my notes was, uh, Karaveev. He, he was, he's a little bit more limited than Fernandez. So I thought it was still impressive that they managed to absorb that given that he was such a key part of their, their game plan. And it, it didn't make that much of a difference to their, to their display. Can I quickly just give a couple positive points on Finland? Because I also kind of agree they're, they're not a super great soccer team at this point. And, and it's kind of a bummer that they come into their first major tournament and they get that opening win, but with a big, big asterisk there. And then they come into this game and don't play all that well. Graham, you talked about Glenn Kamara. I thought, I, obviously with the caveat that this wasn't a very good attacking performance from Finland, I thought he was bright. And I think he's, he's one of the most talented players on this team. And I just genuinely enjoy watching him play soccer. He played on the left side of their midfield three, driving the ball forward, doing those those runs that you mentioned there, Graham. I, I think he's active with his off-ball movement, and if he'd had a little bit more help around him, I, I think that would even allow him to shine a little bit more. So uh, Glenn Kamara was a positive for me. And then also just another random finish thing that brings me joy. They've used a long throw-in in this tournament multiple times. It's happened in both of their games. It's Daniel O'Shaughnessy, their left center back, who will go up on that left side and throw the ball in as far as he can into the box. There was one in the 35th minute. That went straight to Russia's goalkeeper. But, man, I don't know. Sometimes I guess you have to find the little positive things to be able to appreciate going to a tournament like this. And and I hope that Finland and, and Finland's fans can find some of those positive things. Um, Daniel O'Shaughnessy, by the way, might not surprise you to learn that he doesn't have a fully Finnish parentage there, by the way, with uh, with, with, with that name. Some, something else I wanted to pick up with, with you, Joe, is the 5-3-2. You mentioned, obviously, it's a 5-3-2 shape. Why is there so much 5-3-2 in this tournament? Is it, is it peculiar because of, you know, the nature of international tournaments and the way that one needs to set up to, to grind out and go through? Yeah, that's it's a great question, Ryan, because we've seen a bunch of different teams use it. We've seen Hungary use it. We've seen uh, Finland use it multiple times. North Macedonia has used it. I think Scotland used it as well, right, Grim? I mean, they, they yep. were in that, that shape. That, that little for, underdog Germany used yeah, it, Yeah, yeah, that little, <laughs> that little Germany team used it in moments. I think it is... 
I think it's because of the nature of international soccer, like you're saying, Ryan. Because we talked about yesterday, there are so many high-possession teams and so many really low-possession teams. Finland thinks that their best way to to win soccer games and to get results is to defend in a deeper block. And I guess a, a lot of these coaches want to have three center backs to deal with aerial balls in or to have extra extra defenders at the back. And so then really one of the most natural shapes to build from that is the three central midfielders and the two forwards up front. You could also go with a 5-4-1, and, and I'm a little bit surprised that we haven't seen more teams do that. But the 5-3-2 is a pretty natural defensive shape to fall into when you're planning to absorb pressure. Yeah, and, and I think we, we, we should remember two things. One, this is still what only the second iteration of the expanded European Championship. And I do think if you're a smaller uh, country or smaller footballing, smaller footballing nation, excuse me, like Finland, you're going to go with, with a more defensively solid plan. You're going to look to defend first because you don't have the high-profile attackers you might need. I think that's definitely one aspect of it. The other thing, and it is genuinely a thing I really enjoy about major international tournaments, is they're always a very good sort of bookmark for what is in vogue right now when it comes to tactics or broadly speaking what is the fashionable thing and it is this sort of 3-4-2-1 it remains dominant in the same way that like 4-2-3-1 was for I think 2010 and 2014 World Cups so you do get variations here and there but I think it also shows you what international managers are looking at as being the easiest way to build a team to defend well but play okay on the front foot or counterattack or get attacking chances but I think it gives you defensive solidity and then a good attacking base as well. I also, when you're talking about things that are in vogue there, one of, one of the things watching, I think it was Hungary yesterday, and then Zuba today, has there been a tournament with so many big lumbering centre forwards to play off? I mean, that's, you know, Lyndon Dykes for Scotland, Salai for Hungary, Zuba for, for Russia. Seems like there's been a number of those in this tournament. Yeah, and even in the even in the Wales Turkey game, right? You have Kiefer Moore and, and Barack Yilmaz, both yeah. more target men than anything else. It's that's another thing, right? Set pieces, and, and I guess it's, they haven't paid, they haven't played as big of a part in this tournament as maybe I would have thought. But set pieces, d- defensive work, sitting back in your own half, and then having an outlet to play crosses into the box. Those are three things that I think we'll see at pretty much every major international tournament because they're just staples that you can always fall back on when you need a goal. I think, I think we've, we've kind of put it all together here, which is basically, if we're saying that international tournaments and the tactics and formations used therein tend to be a good indicator of how things are in the present soccer landscape, I would say everybody being very tired and having had no breaks, uh, <laughs> uh basically means they're going to play a shape that makes them defensive and sound defensively, but then Ping it to the big guy who's going to knock it down is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. And then the Joe's point, focus on those set pieces, make something happen there. I really do think it kind of shows us what like the footballing world is right now, which is can't really have a ton of creativity and passing connectivity because there are a ton of injuries and players are fatigued. So we're going to go a bit more direct at times. And maybe that does lend itself to the big man up top. Does indeed. That was Finland against Russia. Group B looking very tight with Belgium, Russia and Finland all on three points. Denmark taking on Belgium on Thursday. When we return after these short messages, we'll be talking about Graham's favorite team. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are talking Group A. We're talking the middle game of Wednesday. Of course, Turkey against Australia. This one finishing 2-0 to the Antipodeans. Uh, Ramsey becoming the first Welsh player to score at multiple Euros. Uh, Connor Roberts getting a late goal too in this one. And Gareth Bale with a couple of assists in this one as well. And Joe inventing a brand new corner routine. (laughs) First of all, I like you're just not even going to acknowledge or explain the fact that you called Wales Australia multiple times. We all sure. know it's because of the jerseys, but just in case anyone out there missed this game, that's that's why Ryan's calling them Australia. Did you also call them Antipodeans, or did I just have like a mild stroke? From the, uh, I believe that's for uh, people from below the equator, darling. Is that not the correct term? I mean, I don't know. You're clearly more learned and worldly than I. <laughs> I'm not sure about Sounds that. good. <laughs> Ryan, I, I've completely forgotten your question. I'm going to talk about Gareth Bale. Yeah, Please do. Yeah, cool. He, he had that, oh, uh, that's right, the corner kick thing. We had this kind of discussion, is he offside, is he not offside? Turkey clearly thought he was there at the end. Uh, but, but Gareth Bale doing some really darn right incredible things in this game. He was floating from the right side to the left side, played most often on the right, especially in the first half. But he was doing his best wide Pirlo impression, playing playing wider but dropping in into central spaces a little bit into the half space and then getting on the ball and playing these lovely weighted through balls to Aaron Ramsey. He played four or five of them in this game, including one for the assist. And it's just beautiful work from Gareth Bale showing a side of his game that I don't think we get to see all that often. Taylor, um, small nation with a back five here for Wales. <laughs> Theme. Uh, did they go with the back five? I thought they were in a back th- four. It's kind of yeah, a 5 4 one, wasn't it? Or, no. I, at times in the second half, I think once Ampadu came on, it, it shifted a little bit. But Taylor, I have him in the back four as well. Okay. Yeah, I had him in a in more of a four two three one. The thing that I thought was really interesting was Dan James and Gareth Bale swapping sides pretty regularly, especially in the first half. And I, I had thought that maybe they were going to try to highlight Turkey's left back Umuts and maybe try to go at him with Gareth Bale. But I think. If anything, the swapping of positions was basically just meant to probe for vulnerabilities and also, I think, keep Turpy, Turkey <laughs> Turpy, uh, reacting to what whales were doing. I think anytime you can get the opponent to respond to you and change what they're doing or adjust a little bit, you are dictating control of the game there. And by Turkey having to sort of figure some things out on the fly, or at least attempt to figure things out on the fly, I think it did give Wales enough of the game to control to take advantage and get that goal. Uh Graham, uh, let's let's focus a bit on your favourite nation on the planet, Wales. Um, <laughs> you mentioned sort of the, the battle of the big men. I think even Joe titled this game as the battle of the big men, and yet more big men on show in this game. <laughs> yeah, and and Kiefer Moore is is, is pretty good at, at playing that role as as the big man. There was even uh, there were, he even drew blood at a point, which I think is a big man criteria. You take that one off. Yep, I've I've uh, had a, a, a bleeding nose. That's what I'm supposed to do. Um, but the thing that was, the thing that was most impressive for me about this Welsh performance was just the level of running from deep, which Turkey just never got a handle on at, at all. Obviously, um, Aaron Ramsey was the, the one doing it 
most he was most obvious in that in that he he scores the goal and there's a chance as well which he should he should score about 10 minutes before that where he he beats the offside trap gets on the end of a, a brilliant Gareth Bale ball over the top by the way Gareth Bale is a is a deep lying pulling the strings from <laughs> deep playmaker is is not a tactical ploy i expected to see anytime soon but it worked really really well but um yeah even even Dan James just stretching the pitch i said last night in the podcast that i thought that would that that would be key um, James or Bale just stretching the pitch and creating a little bit more space for for Wales and and that's what he did. I thought James had a really good game, even though it was still a very Dan James performance, um, as illustrated by his cross in the in the final few minutes before Wales did score their second goal. He he really should have set up a, a second goal to kill it, and instead of just playing it along the floor, he decides to hit it thirty um, like ten feet in the air above the the the, the person in the middle, but. Yeah, I thought that Wales were really good. Another really poor performance from Turkey. I thought the the changes made at half time just reflected how bad they were in the centre of the pitch, just progressing the ball forwards again, which was the issue against Italy as well. Uh, Chalinoglu is, is was dropped into kind of the, the pivot role, which I just I think that showed how bad how how desperate their struggles were that they just couldn't get the ball forward that that they just thought right we're going to we're just going to drop our most technically able player into central midfield rather than an attacking midfield position simply to get them on the ball more often and, and to try and make things happen and it, it didn't really work it was a little bit of a a plaster on on a gaping wound but um Wales I, I found them really impressive I thought they were comfortable with the ball at their feet they were good there was good zip good tempo a lot of intelligence with movement good synergy between players and Everyone on that pitch put a shift in as well. Was it hard for you to be that nice, Graham? There, <laughs> <laughs> I can I can separate my my personal emotions, Ryan. Uh, well, I, we'll see on Friday. But uh, <laughs> normally, normally I'm sad that Graham is recording remotely from Scotland. It would be fun for us all to be together. For this show, I feel like Graham might have punched at least two of us by this point. So I'm kind of happy he's across the Atlantic. We'll see what kind of frequent flyer miles he has if that ends up changing. Um, I, I'm with Graham. I thought this was a, a pretty solid performance from Wales. I, I remain a little bit confused as to whether or not this was a very good performance from them or extremely poor from Turkey or maybe both. But for Turkey, I contrast them with what we've already talked about with Russia, that Russia coming out in the second game, we saw changes in their approach. We saw changes in their attacks and in their lineup. And it made a lot of sense. It made sense for how they wanted to play and for what their strengths are. And I look at Turkey and... They make changes, they have people in different positions, but it's it's tough for me to say here's clearly what they were trying to do aside from hoof the ball long for Burak Yilmaz and hope that something happens and maybe bring Chalanolu central to see if that helps too. But there's a lot of maybes and conditionals in my mind when it comes to looking at Turkey's game plan. And I think, Graham, I'm with you. Those halftime substitutions are meant to change things up. But for me, they also show that uh, Chanel Ganesh, the manager, didn't really seem to know what his best 11 was or how to get the best out of them. It's why I think Demiro comes back in after not starting this game. And that felt like a little bit of a demotion. But then it's Ihan going to like a holding midfield spot. And I'm not sure that put Turkey in that much better of a position. I don't think Karaman and uh, Cengiz Under were utilized very well, if at all. It seemed like it was, again, just kind of direct running. And in the end, it was just a Turkey team that didn't have a ton of answers or solutions to the major questions being asked by Wales in this game and certainly Italy in the first. There was there was a point in this game, and it wasn't even that late, to be honest. It was about with 25 minutes to go that I noticed that Soyuncu was crossing balls <laughs> from yep. like the halfway line into the into the box, and and I'm thinking, what what is going on here? Like, what what is the plan from Turkey in this game? There just didn't really seem 
to to be one for me. They just they for me in both games they just never got a handle on how to progress the ball through the pitch, and so it just became uh, Soyuncu, as I say, just launching balls to the to the back post or into the box. And, and it's, I really it's do weird. Think, sorry, go ahead, Joe. And then I'll, no, no, then you're I'll, good. I've, I've talked plenty. Okay, well, I was just going to say, it's weird because I, I totally agree with you guys. Turkey had almost no recognizable possession structure. And so as the game wore on, it got later and later in the second half. They're down a goal. They have a chance to push for the equalizer. I'm thinking what you said on a previous show, Graham, just get the ball in the box. And I don't remember what team you were talking about for that for that statement that you made. But I'm not usually a, a lump it in and, and hope for the best kind of guy. But with Turkey, because of how they set up, that was really the only option they left themselves. And then as the second half regressed... They were almost unwilling to do that. They didn't have central midfielders in between the lines. They didn't have good possession spacing. So at that point, your only option is instead of trying to break through the block, play around it, get the ball wide, and then play over it with those crosses, aerial crosses into the middle. And the only time Turkey did that was on corner kicks where they were dominant. Wales Wales was very poor defending those, and Turkey was very good at attacking those balls. But in open play, they, they kind of refused to take the only option that they left themselves, and that was just baffling to me. Um, Taylor, many te- many people, sorry, characterizing Turkey as potential dark horses before this tournament yeah. started. I don't think that was necessarily something you did in in, a, in the previews or anything like that. No. But certainly, it seems like they they have um, felt fallen below expectation. And if you even look at the the stats here, they had more attempts on goal here. Uh, you know, they, they had more possession, and and still didn't manage to make much of this game. They were pretty slow in transition. It is it's just like very little creativity going on as we've as we've already covered. How do you feel about this Turkey team as a whole? Because we had a conversation yesterday about the teams after one game who disappointed us the most, and we sort of landed on Croatia and Poland. Turkey maybe belonging in that group too? Yeah, I think so. I think where I am, and and I will try to be honest, and I will try not to sound like I knew stuff, but like... It, the whole Turkey as a dark horse never made sense to me because they have recognizable defenders. And I think that's a huge reason why people started to think like, oh, this team is really good. If you look at them from back to front on that roster, you think Soyuncu is really good. They've got uh, uh, Toprak. Uh, to- no, not Toprak. Excuse me. Kabak. Ozan Kabak. And they've got Demero. And then they've got ooh, Chalanolu. Like th- there's some good talent in here. But really, if you take it that step further, and this is where I was in the preview, I don't know where the goals were coming from because I don't think they have very good technical attackers. It felt like they were going to be very route one and try to rely on pace from Cengiz and there. And that is more or less what we saw. And I would add as well that those results against, say, the Netherlands and Norway were, and Russia even were, were impressive. But I think that clouded people's vision of this team that they score a bunch of goals. And I think that was a Russia team that was experimenting, a Netherlands team that was experimenting, and a Turkey team that were sort of playing the same way, the same style and getting those results in the friendlies and assuming that that would translate. But but it didn't. And I think if you look at the rest of the team, there are reasons why. And this is probably going to sound harsh, but I think it's fair. Like... The Turkish league is one of those leagues that I think people don't really watch and therefore assume is better than it is. And if you're playing for Besiktas, Fenerbahce, or Galatasaray, Trabzonspor to some extent, Istanbul BB at times, then maybe it is. Maybe it is better. But for the most part, the league across the board is not. And most people root for one of those three big teams. There's not a ton of local love. If you go to an Ankara Spor, an Ankara Guju game, and it's against Galatasaray or Fenerbahce, they're going to be predominantly Galatasaray Fenerbahce fans in that stadium, even though it's hundreds of miles away from Istanbul, because that's how the country works. And so with this, these players, 
You don't have a ton of technical ability. You've got good, like, like able to handle pressure sort of players, but I don't think you've got the technical creativity that people might have thought they were going to be bringing. And in Turkey teams of the past, you've had younger players who were unknown, who hadn't yet broken through. And you don't really have that with this Turkey team. It's a lot of mid twenties guys who certainly still have tons of time in their career, but it's not that these are undiscovered 20 year olds who are now going to make these big moves. It always felt like a team that were going to be defensive and try to go long and hope something happens and that's pretty much what we saw so i have a hard time bringing it all the way back to your original question apologies for this monologue <laughs> i have a hard time saying they disappointed because at the end of the day i feel like this is the turkey i thought they were going to be and it's a bummer they weren't better but i'm also not really surprised that they weren't well wales now in group a have four more points than scotland do they are guaranteed of a top three finish now looking in good stead to progress into the round of 16 turkey I'm meanwhile, just sad have- ryan well, Turkey is sharing the point tally that you have at the moment, Graham. They're on zero. They've got uh, five goals conceded, none scored. Not looking too good for them. Next up, we're going to be talking about Italy against Switzerland. Well, to be more accurate, um, Joe Taylor and Graham are going to be talking about them. I've got to duck out for this last segment of the podcast, unfortunately. My writing team and I have got to work on some more Artem Zuba material for the next round of uh, uh, Russia games. So, but I'll bid you gentlemen adieu at this point. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, we'll be back very shortly. After these break, after these messages with Italy against Switzerland. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. It's been a couple minutes since last you heard from us talking soccer, but I believe it's been a couple hours for us, so let's reset. Ryan has left us to go sing some songs and be talented. <laughs> Still here with me to talk about Italy's <laughs> comprehensive win over Switzerland are Joe and Graham. Graham, Ryan is gone. Would you like to take some cheap shots, or are you staying dignified? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was. I would normally take shots about England's quality of goalkeepers, but Scotland's goalkeeper got lobbed from 50 yards the other day, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that's maybe not the best tact, but um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just glad that the guy who uh, is who won't shut up about how England are going to win another major tournament. You know, all those major tournaments that they've won since 1966 <laughs> is is gone, and we've got some peace and quiet today. To we do. <laughs> About the tournament in a dignified manner. Yeah, dignified and uh, making sure, I'm checking my notes to make sure I haven't said anything wildly inappropriate. No, I think we're good. Uh, but we are going to talk about uh, Italy's 3-0 win over Switzerland. Italy through to the next round of the Euros. Uh, that is confirmed. Two wins from two games, six goals for, none against. I'm going to say that's a strong start. Uh, Joe, speaking of starts, how did they start this game? What did you make of that lineup, which was pretty similar to what we saw uh, in the first game? Yeah, it was the same starting 11 with the exception of right back. Uh, Florenzi had gone out in the previous game, and so Di Lorenzo came in for him in, in game one against Turkey and started this game at right back. Italy approached this game positionally, I think, in a largely similar way to how they beat Turkey. They they have this flexible shape in possession, and, and on paper it's a 4-3-3, but it rotates so easily in possession into this 3-2-5 shape. With the right back in this game, it's Di Lorenzo, as I said, tucking alongside, tucking in alongside Benucci and Chiellini, and then Berardi plays wide on the right, and Spinazzola plays wide on the left, that's the, the left back for Italy. And then it's Barella filling in the right half space, and Insigne filling in the left half space, and then Immobile, uh, Immobile as this nine, and it flows so well, and we saw some of that early on. We also saw Switzerland control some of the ball and in high press and and so Italy pinned them back Italy pinned Switzerland back in moments and we saw that possession shape but we also saw way more of Italy in build up than we ever did against Turkey because of how deep Turkey sat deep we we just uh, how often Turkey sat deep we didn't often see Italy having to break through a press and in this game we saw some of the high possession stuff high up the field but we also saw a different look from Italy and and they looked just as good with the ball deep in their own half as they did in the attacking third against Turkey were you surprised to see them look that competent in in that sort of change of situation, Joe? Because for me, if you're playing a, cer- a certain way, like we talked about this uh, in the earlier games today, it can be really hard to have that second look or even that third look. But for Italy, didn't seem to be too bothered about having to change things up and change gears at times. Well, that's a great question, Taylor. I think for me, in my head, it's kind of the same look. We're just seeing that look in different parts of the field, right? Because... Either way, whether you're playing against Turkey and you're winning 3 nothing in that game and you're controlling the ball in the final third, you're still using the ball. And that is the most pivotal thing, it, regardless of, of, of where you're doing it, right? In this game against Switzerland, it was a lot more build up under a high press. And we still saw Italy use the ball. It's, it's all part of the same tactical identity that they have under Mancini. It's just a different phase of play that we saw them really excel at in this game versus game one. So, Graham, Joe has talked us through the tactics in the lineup. I'm going to give you between 1 and 15 minutes to talk about that central <laughs> midfield for Italy. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. It's it's the perfect midfield. It's For me, it's absolutely the best midfield in this tournament. I know some people listening to this might be screaming about France. Listen to me say that, but 
I, I just think that the balance of this Italian midfield with uh, Barella, uh, Locatelli and Jorginho, Verratti's not even getting in. Obviously, he has a, an injury at the moment, but there is a sense that he he is getting back to full fitness and I don't think you put him in there at the moment. I just think, I love the way that they protect the back four. Joe was talking about there how they were a little bit deeper tonight, but they still managed to do that job so fantastically. And then the three of them, maybe not so much Jorginho, but Barella and Locatelli come and flying at you when they win the ball on the counter-attack, which is, is you know, how they certainly scored the the um, the the first goal uh, with Locatelli with Berardi getting up the the right side. What a pass from Locatelli, by the way, to to release him up the side. And then Berardi, who my complaint with him is he can be a little bit erratic. He's a little bit wasteful, and it's one of the things I think about this Italy team that may hold them back a little bit is. Berardi can be a little bit wasteful and Senior can be a little bit predictable and Immobile started this tournament fantastically but from what I've seen of him for Italy he can be a little bit heavy footed sometimes so I do wonder if in a game where they struggle to create um, opportunities whether that the, the front three might not take the chances that they need to in a game however uh, this Berardi did brilliantly again in this game uh, really making me look a little bit of a fool for saying Chiesa would play on the right side because I think Berardi tactically had see why he's playing there to to stretch the pitch a little bit get to the byline a little bit more with Chiesa obviously came on in the second half and played well but he conducts things kind of through the middle a little bit but that that midfield and Locatelli in particular. I, I said, um, I mean, I'm evening things up a little bit because I got Chiesa wrong a little bit, but I, I, I did say in our previews that Locatelli I thought would be the breakthrough player for Italy and I can definitely see a £50 million move to Manchester City and his uh, future on the back of his performances <laughs> at this tournament. He is playing rather well. I mean, in your defense, there are several very good players on Italy, such that you're not going to get them all on the pitch at one time. So I think you could be forgiven for maybe thinking certain players would play more and they may still do so. I think you're absolutely right that that midfield three probably doesn't need to be changed because the one who probably was most likely to be swapped out is Locatelli. I don't know how you have him score a brace and then make him sit in favor of somebody else. Maybe if they rest players, it balances a bit more. But I think I'm with you that it should be that midfield three until there's reason for it not to be. Where I maybe disagree with you a little bit, and where I would say that I agree with maybe an earlier version of Graham, we're going back to the future (laughs) style now, I actually didn't think Berardi had that good of a game. And I will clarify by saying I am very much all in on Italy. They have... Very moved to the top or like joint top of my most likely to win this tournament because I thought they were so good in so many areas. But I saw, I think I was paying attention to it because of some of your concerns about him, Graham. And I did still see Berardi. Yes, he has the pass for the assist, and that's great. But there are other moments, even for the second goal, it, it's a great counterattack from Italy. But then he plays a ball that I think gets cut out, and then they get the ball back, and then they keep it going. There's that. There's some kind of dribbles that don't come off. There's some passes that don't come off. He has a few shots that don't work either. I think still a good game, but I see more of what you're talking about from him. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, castigate yourself too much, Graham. Yeah, I mean Berardi. He, I think, what makes me think he had a good game today was his contribution for the first goal. I think is brilliant, and I don't think Chiesa does that. As I think, I think that's why I'm, I'm, I'm maybe. Hmm. Um, edging towards saying he had a good game. I totally understand what you're saying, and I, I, I did kind of reference that in, in what I was saying about him, in that he is wasteful, he is a bit erratic, he has way too many shots off targets, he makes the wrong decisions sometimes. However, 
um, Chiesa would would have cut inside Rodriguez for that for the first goal, and actually Rodriguez does. I think he does the right thing by showing him to the byline, but Berardi still has enough about him to get past his man, and then, then not just get past his man, but pick out the pass into Locatelli as well. So I can see why Mancini is sticking with him because Chiesa wouldn't do that. He would maybe congest things a little bit too much in the centre. He's a great option to have off the bench, but I've I've turned around. I I, I think I would stick with Berardi at the moment because this game plan is working so well so then joe graham may have already answered this one but i'd like your thoughts as well like it's tough to know when italy aren't performing as well as they could be in that second half because they're i think at the point where i made that note they were already up two nil they're looking very comfortable switzerland don't seem to be creating very much don't seem to be causing them too many problems and so that was where i started to see some of those shots go wide and some of those passes not work out immobile has at least two good chances that he doesn't put on frame then eventually he gets the third the third goal and it balances out somewhat. So I guess I'd like your thoughts on when do you get concerned about those types of misses? Like, should we be concerned at all, even though Italy win 3-0? Or is it more uh, easily excusable because of the overall result of the game? Yeah, I'll, I'll almost completely excuse it, whether that's Berardi okay. or, or Immobile. Taylor, I remember you and I talked in the U.S.'s game, that, that U.S.-Costa Rica game, right? That friendly to close out that stretch of four games the United States men's national team. We were talking about Tim Weah and how creative he was in certain moments, but how wasteful he was in other moments. And I'm not saying Tim Weah and, and Berardi or Tim Weah and Immobile are the same player, but there are similarities in that, especially with Berardi. He'll, he'll try stuff. He'll go out there and make something happen. And a lot of times it's going to come off as erratic. It's going to come off as a shot that goes over the bar after a really nice dribble or really nice feint or something created that shot in the first place. I, I'm not concerned about Italy. We can nitpick this team. And there are things that I took down in my notes to, to nitpick this team. Spinazzola as that left back pushing forward, playing almost as a left wing back in possession. He doesn't, he's, he's right footed. And so it's really awkward sometimes having him high up the field on the left because he can't play the sort of cutback that Berardi played for Locatelli's first goal. He can't, he can't play that ball back into the box as easily with that left foot. So sometimes he congests things and, and attacks fizzled in this game. But that stuff's going to happen. And I think for a team as good as this Italy team is, that stuff just doesn't matter as much as it does for a team like Switzerland where the margins are much smaller. Yeah, I, I think that that is probably the correct perspective to have. And I would say that third goal like really did sort of drive home how good this team is from top to bottom because it's a great finish from Chiro, Chiro Immobile, and I don't want to take anything away from that. But what I want to focus on is the sequence that wins the ball back for Italy. It's Toloi stepping, it's Gravanovic thinking he can like turn and have some time, and he just gets... It, it's the worst kind of tackle if you're the attacker on the ball, just to completely lose the ball, not even get crunched, not even be able to make the argument that you were fouled, but just know that you made the wrong play. And Toloi, who is a second-half substitute, steps in, wins that one, and plays it forward, and Italy get that goal. And it just seems like Italy are so deep that like, like even if you do have a player sort of underperforming, someone else can come in and raise the team performance, but also keep them on their toes a little bit. One big drawback for Italy in this game was Giorgio Chiellini uh, having to come off with injury. Graham, the way it looks for me in the moment is that he had scored the goal, then it was called off for VAR, and this joke has been made several times because I think lots of people felt this way, but it did feel for a second like he had asked to be substituted off the field because his goal didn't count. <laughs> and it seemed a little bit like uh, like, a, uh, like a, a frustrated athlete, less so than an injury. But I'm pretty confident it was actually an injury. Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably an injury. But one of the thing that was um, maybe most surprising, and, and maybe another sign of the strength that this Italian team have, is 
at that point, and maybe this is a bit of ignorance on my part, not expecting and not knowing what Mancini would do in that situation. Well, I'm thinking, well, Bastoni's coming on here, who Bastoni has, is fantastic and one of the best defenders in Serie A, and not only one of the best set defenders in Serie A, but played on the left side of a back three for Inter as they as they won the uh, they won the Scudetto, which is where he would have slotted in here. But it's a Cherby who comes on and 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 does has has an excellent game as well. And you're mentioning there, there's players who can come in and and keep others on their toes, and I think. I think that's absolutely spot on you know Di Lorenzo was there any drop off from him coming in from Florenzi um, you know starting the first game um, Acerbi does a great job for Chiellini they've even got as I mentioned there Bastoni Chiesa comes on in the second half um, and and so yeah Toloi you mentioned there as well Cristante these are all players who are are playing their role in this team as well and I think one of the things that that marks Italy out um, from a lot of the teams that I've seen at this tournament is that they, they are very much more than the sum of their parts. And I don't think we've seen that really with any other team. Even the, the well-coached teams, it tends to be a good defensive platform that allows the individuals to thrive. And France, who I still think I would pick them as the winners, that very much describes them for me as, as I think they are a good coach team, France, but it's very much about giving the platform to the individuals. Where Italy have a vision and a ideology that is kind of much more than that. And the, the fact that Mancini has been able to impose that and implement that in international soccer which we all know is so much more difficult to do that sort of thing you can do that at a club level where you've got players every single day but to do it for an international team is hugely impressive and what a run they're on I mean I think that's 31 goals without reply now that Italy have scored they've won 10 in a row I mean they they have real momentum more momentum than any other team in the whole tournament I think and Graham, for, for new listeners or people who are new to the tournament, why is it, you've kind of already hit on it there, but I wanted to dr- drill down a little bit deeper. Why do you think it is that it's so much harder to get an international team to play the way Italy are playing or to play the way a club team plays? Because there are sequences in this game where it, it felt like Italy had no business being able to move the ball that effectively and efficiently and have players constantly in open pockets of space. And I, I really don't know how Mancini has been able to do that aside from, I guess, finally getting the backing of the press and feeling a bit comfortable. But for you, when you're trying to kind of explain to people why international soccer maybe isn't quite at the level of, say, the Champions League, uh, what would be the major factors there? Mm. Well, I mean, the, the, the simplest explanation and the biggest factor, of course, is, is the lack of time that an international coach would have with their squad, you know, and a, 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 a club manager has their, their team, you know, five days training and then a game, whereas an international manager only has, what, an international break once every couple months at most, something like that. But but not not only that, but you're you're if your squad so I'm stating the obvious here, but most international squads have players playing for numerous different clubs. And so you're you're pulling in all these players who have had different um soccer education from different clubs and different coaches and th- their daily coaching is different to another player's daily coaching and you've got to mesh all that together and so that sees international managers pretty much go for lowest common denominator stuff and I, I don't even mean that as an insult I just mean they go for the basics that they know all players no matter what club they're at and what coach they're playing for at a club they will know and so they, they use that as the foundation and then allow the individuals who, uh, who operate on instinct and individual brilliance to kind of do their thing Mancini's not done that this is very much uh, like a club coach team the, the patterns are all there, not just in terms of their possession patterns, but the thing that is often the most difficult thing to coach in a team is off the ball patterns and pressing triggers and things like that. They are all there for Italy. And watching this team, they are quite clearly for me the best coach team at this tournament. And that, that's the thing that makes them 
front runners for me, or among the front runners, I should say. You talking there, Graham, about the the high press, the pressing triggers. That's that's the term you used. Italy high pressed in this game, and they high pressed against Turkey too. Turkey just did almost nothing with the ball and had almost none of the ball. But we saw more of that in this game from Italy, and we we saw them do it really effectively. Even in the second half, when they sat deeper, they're up they're up two to nothing just seven minutes into the second half. There's no need to go too crazy with how how they defend. So they sit a little bit deeper. Then they even add on a third center back, but they still press up out of their mid block. They were almost constantly putting pressure on the ball for. Switzerland. And I love that from Italy because in this tournament, we haven't seen many teams apply a lot of defensive pressure. It's been a lot of 5-3-2 blocks like we talked about earlier on the show. So seeing teams like Italy and even Switzerland, they did it in this game and it didn't work and maybe it was a little bit naive, but we saw two teams pressing and it made for this really fun entertaining game. The only other teams I think that have high-pressed much at all in this tournament, England. England did it against Croatia, the Netherlands did it, but not very well. Portugal did it, but they didn't have to do much of it against Hungary. And I think Germany did it a little bit against France. But Italy, to me, looked like the consistently, the most consistently dangerous high-pressing team in this competition. And I think that's another, you know, arrow in their quiver that they have to pull out at any point in this tournament. So we've talked a lot about Italy in this game. We don't need to talk too much about Switzerland. Uh, Italy top of the group, Wales in fourth, Switzerland third with one point, Turkey last with zero. Uh, Joe, do you see any reasons for optimism? Are there any things you can point to from this game? Or is the the major positive takeaway that they still have to play Turkey and that should be three points for them? That is the biggest takeaway that they have the easiest game left, that they've gotten the two harder ones out of the way early. I, like I said, I liked what they did. I, I liked that they high pressed. It was not especially effective, but I appreciate how they approach games. They had some nice possession in brief spells when they could get out of pressure, uh, out of Italy's pressure. But yeah, I mean, we didn't see even Switzerland look as dangerous as I thought they did against Wales. This is just a really tough game against a really strong opponent. I think they're going to have to hope for a win against Turkey and have to make that happen and then also be able to either come up with the goal differential to get back and, and climb to second in this group or hope that the rest of the results fall in their favor across these six groups. Yeah, I'm with you that I think they're probably hoping to get that win and then maybe make up that goal difference, but it would what have to be five, I think, because Wales plus two, Switzerland minus three. So their best bet is probably then going to be third place with four points. That that would have been enough in 2016. I don't know if that will be enough this time. Graham, any any positives for Switzerland or is it basically just they're still playing Turkey? <laughs> yeah, I think that might be right. might, that genuinely might be the positive. Italy are obviously in another level to them. One of the things that I did notice um, about the Swiss performance, which was really frustrating to me. And once I saw it, I, I couldn't stop seeing it. So the, the, I think it's the second goal, actually, the second Locatelli goal. It looks like Switzerland have just allowed, they, they're so deep, their defensive line that, that, but they actually do press Locatelli, but they've given themselves 15 yards to make up on Locatelli. And the reason that kept on happening was they kept on getting pushed back by the run of Immobile. And so that was creating this space on the edge of the box. And even for the third goal, I know it's, it comes from a, a high press from Italy and, and a little bit of a mistake from Switzerland. And, and it's Immobile who actually puts it in. But the, the space is there again because of those runs. And they, I just wanted them to hold a line. for the, They did not do it for the whole match. They, they kept on getting pushed back. And that was creating the space for Locatelli and Barella and those people on the edge of the box. And... Yeah, that that it was. I, I can't believe not a single member of their coaching team pointed that out to them because, to me, it was so obvious. And I am I, I'm not a professional coach, so um, yeah, that was a frustrating thing about their performance here for me. 
to be to be fair, Petkovic has only been there for like a couple months and not many, many, many years. So how could he have possibly known? Uh, commiserations to Switzerland. Congratulations to Italy. Let's talk about the games tomorrow briefly. Uh, 9 a.m. We've got Ukraine versus North Macedonia. My one major thing for this game, which uh, I will admit I saw at this point on Twitter, and it's now my favorite point. I either need North Macedonia to win this game, and so that can be the story, or I need them to not score any more goals for the rest of this tournament, because right now, Goran Pandev is certainly their oldest goal scorer at the tournament, also their youngest goal scorer, because I believe he is their only ever <laughs> goal scorer, and I want that to continue to be the case. Uh, Graham, for North Macedonia, do you see uh, positive signs of the things that you would be looking for if you're a fan of North Macedonia uh, to to show that things are going well? Just that, that left side, again, Alioski, I think he's mm-hmm. so crucial to, to the way they play. There were signs of it in, in that first game um, against Austria. He, he he was getting up and down that, that, that left side, and the, uh, the, his first half performance was pretty good, and Pandev in particular knew, in particular knew when the overlap was coming. But I think if Alioski and, and Elmas get a partnership going, then something is happening for, for North Macedonia. And I, I'm a big fan of Enes Bardi, um, having watched him in La Liga. So we get, if they get him on set pieces, uh, win a few set pieces, then they have a chance. But I, I actually liked what I saw from Ukraine in their, in their game against, uh, the Netherlands. So I, I just think they might have a little bit more, a little bit too much attacking flair. So many left footers in that, in that Ukraine team, uh, by the way. I think they're, I don't think I've seen a team with so many attacking left footers than, than this Ukraine team, but I'm actually quite looking forward to this game. I, I, I want to see how Ukraine follow up that, that performance against, uh, Netherlands. Uh, Joe Graham is excited for Ukraine's left footedness. Uh, anything you're excited for from Ukraine? I'm excited for one of their non-left-footed attacking players. That's Yoremchuk, who plays as their their number nine in their 4-3-3. I really liked what I saw from him in, in the game against the Netherlands. He's mobile. He can make runs in behind the back line to pull center backs away. And, and as North Macedonia defend with three center backs in this game, that's going to be really important. He can also drop in, get on the ball, and play forward. He's just a really nice forward. He plays for Ghent, I believe, in uh, in Belgium. I really like him, and I think he's going to cause North Macedonia a lot of problems, along with Zinchenko as a left-sided central midfielder in that 4-3-3. Uh, and, and I heard everything Joe said, but I was also confirming that it is Ukraine, not the Ukraine. Uh, we had a few comments about that one. Just wanted to make sure, yes, the Ukraine is what the Soviets called it. They don't really want to be called mm. that anymore. We can just call them Ukraine. You both did that. I think I have made that mistake earlier in other episodes uh do you all have any predictions on how this one's going to go or should we move on to the noon game i'm i made a prediction about russia finland and i was wrong and although you know what taylor the fact that ryan isn't here i feel like he would be overjoyed at me making a prediction in his absence so i won't so you will or won't (laughs) i won't i won't okay that's fair (laughs) (laughs) all right uh then what about at noon we've got denmark versus belgium christian erickson uh is recovering but will obviously not be playing for belgium uh timothy castagni with a double eye socket fracture versus russia he is out axel witzel and kevin de bruyne could play but will likely be starting on the bench Graham, uh, you can talk about Denmark or you can talk about Belgium or the game as a whole, but is there anything in particular you're looking forward to to that one? Um, I, I guess with Denmark, it's still really strange t- for me to be yes. talking about football. Um, because obviously in a football, in a, in a football context, I, I would talk about how Christian Eriksen is so important to that, that's, that central midfield and the passing pa- uh, patterns and the passing triangles. And so they're going to need to find a, a replacement for him to, to do that. But again, it's, it just feels bizarre that we're, 
that they're playing football matches um, so so soon after their one of their best players um, it seems had their life saved on the pitch. So it's, it, there's still a really strange air around this one. I guess Belgium. Um, it, I want to see more of the, the same from them. I was really impressed against Russia how they managed to still impose their their kind of counter attacking style on a team that that was that was probably set up to sit deep and obviously they got a few mistakes in their favour that helped them get ahead and and draw Russia out a little bit. But yeah, I, I guess with with Belgium. Denmark might be a stiffer test and I said from the last game that I, I didn't really know how good Belgium were because Russia were so poor and I want to fast forward a little bit to when they face a comparable opponent so I guess if Denmark's he- head is in this game and again it would be understandable if it's not then they they might be that comparable opponent. Joe, for Denmark, it seems like the most likely scenario is they'll bring in uh, Matthias Jensen to start in place of Christian Eriksen. That's who replaced him in that game. Maybe they go with like a, a double pivot of uh, Hjoiberg and, and Delaney. I think Delaney was a little bit more advanced in their first game against Finland. Do you see any other changes or does that sound most likely to you? No, that sounds about right to me. I think we'll see that midfield that you just mentioned. We'll see Josef Paulsen wide on the right, which is a weird spot for him, but that's where he played in that Finland game. And then you have Braithwaite tucking inside on the left from from his left wing spot. They really play with just a bunch of number nines. So I I think we'll see that again. They're not going to have nearly as much of the ball as they did against Finland, but I'm interested to see if the game might be a little more open because Denmark have some attacking quality, certainly more than Russia Uh, And I think that could lend itself to a more entertaining game. To connect this back to a conversation we were having earlier in the show, which again, for listeners, was like 10 minutes ago and for us was several hours ago, so it seems (laughs) weird. Um, I doubt this happens, but like with Denmark more likely to be defensive and trying to block Belgium's options, is there any chance we see them in a back three? Do they go 5-2-3 like we've seen other teams do? Yeah, it's totally possible, right? We could see them toss on another center back. They have capable center backs in this group. I don't, I don't think, man, I, yeah, that's a really good question, Taylor. I think it's totally possible. I was going to say, ah, it's not likely, but to absorb that extra pressure from Belgium, who's so disciplined in that three box, they have the, the back three, then the wing backs, and then two holding midfielders and two pinched in wingers. So that's, that's the box, the midfield two and the attacking midfielders. And then Lukaku there to defend against that. Yeah, they, they might toss on another central defender. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good shout. Actually, I, d- I don't really know if Casper Hulmand is, is is thinking that. And to be honest, I don't know whether he's done that before. But looking at that, you know, you could quite easily bring in Yannick Vestergaard to play as. I mean, he's a high caliber central defender there, and then Daniel Vass on the right side and Milo on the on the left. Th- those those are two players who are used to playing as as wing backs at club level. So that might be a way for them to compensate for not having Eriksson in the middle of the pitch. So Taylor, you should be the Denmark manager. Uh, I should be the Denmark manager. I should not be the dog manager, I guess. Hopefully, (laughs) listeners did not just hear the explosion of dog barking because my wife and baby just walked in the door. Uh, But if they did, then I walked in the door. Holy crap, Taylor. Reverie is a baller. I mean, your wife and your baby walking through the door. That's, that is just elite level stuff. <laughs> yep. Yeah. We've already got her running sprints. Uh, she will be winning the World <laughs> Cup. That's how it's going to be. I will add, we are in the process of getting her, her Italian citizenship. And I'm just going to point out that when we weren't doing that, Italy not at the World Cup, we decide we're going to get her Italian citizenship. It'll be very good. You're welcome, Italy. Final game of the day. I'm just going to move on swiftly from that would be the Netherlands versus Austria at 3 p.m. Uh, should note for this one, Mark Arnautovic is suspended for the game. Uh, due to comments, we're not going to go 
too far in depth on those because UEFA didn't feel like doing it, so why should we? Uh, but there were allegations that he had said anti-Albanian things or, or uh, basically offensive things to one or two players. Uh, but in the end, UEFA decided to go with Article 14, excuse me, Article 15 instead of 14. 14 would be about racial abuse or ethnic abuse. Article 15 is basically you said something mean, so you've got to set out a game, uh, which could be kind of a big blow to Austria because I think there's a chance Arnautovic would have started this game. Otherwise, he obviously got the goal and helped them look much stronger in the attack. Without him, my big question will be where David Alaba will fit in, uh, starting at center back in the first game, but then eventually going wide and getting some crosses and being involved in the attack. That feels more necessary. That said, against the Netherlands, maybe you want him in the heart of the defense since you would expect them to be a bit more attacking. Uh, Graham, do you have a feeling on where you'd like to see him go? Yeah, I want to see him kind of out on the on the left a little bit okay. more, particularly because um, the the Netherlands without Virgil van Dijk at the back, I think, could be a little bit susceptible to um, kind of aerial aerial balls, and, and Alaba is just such a, a brilliant. Crosser of the ball, you're you're right with Arnautovic. That is a bit of a blow because he is um, very good and good in the air, and he might. I think that Alaba um, Arnautovic partnership might have given the Netherlands some problems, and maybe with Sabitzer as well playing some some balls over the top to Arnautovic, that might that might have caused some problems. So. Yeah, it's, it's it's a bit of a blow, and he's he's really um, shot himself in the in the foot there by being a a, a bit of an idiot. Um, the Netherlands, I want to I want to see, I want to learn more about them. I don't really know where yeah. they where they're at because they in in a lot of their their first game they were very impressive against Ukraine, but I, I, and this was maybe I think going back to that podcast, I think there was a little bit of disagreement um, between myself and Joe and kind of how <laughs> what the structure was of the Netherlands. I didn't see much of a structure, I have to say. Um, so I, I want more evidence. I want to see more of, of, of is there structure? Is this just vibes? And if it's just vibes, I'm just going to lean into that and become a, a full uh, Netherlands fan because I'm all about the vibes. So, Joe, for people who maybe don't have that fresh in their memory, like, say, the person who's talking right now, uh, what was <laughs> the, the kind of basic structure that you would say people should be keeping an eye on when it comes to the Netherlands, who will likely still be without Matthias de Ligt? That would be the major miss for them. He's back in training from a groin injury, but is unlikely to play. So we will expect the same defenders, quote unquote, to be starting for them. But what would be the structure? What would be the shape that you think people uh, should look out for? So in possession, in that game against Ukraine, Frank DeBoer used a back three, and then he had a lot of rotations going on higher up the field. The pattern or the the positioning I noticed most often was a 3-4-2-1, very similar to what Belgium used and and what they used against Russia. It was Wijnaldum as the right attacking midfielder and Memphis Depay as the left attacking midfielder in front of Darun and Frankie de Jong in midfield. So I I saw that a lot. There were some weird idiosyncrasies in how they played. And and Graham, after that podcast that we did, I went back through and watched some more. And I I can absolutely see where you and Ryan and I think Taylor as well were coming from. Darun was dropping into some weird, unnecessary spots deep into the back three to make a back four that was weird and flat and bad. And then defensively, they man-mark. That's another thing to keep your eye on. Against Ukraine, they man-marked with Wijnaldum and Darun and De Jong and even some of the center backs and wing backs at times as they high-pressed. And Ukraine did a, a fair bit of breaking right through that man-marking, like Seattle Sounders breaking through the San Jose earthquake circa 2020. 
kind of breaking through. That's a really niche reference for about eight people. But you get the idea. <laughs> you, you, the man marking can be broken, and Ukraine did some of that, not as much as they could have. So I'm curious. I don't I don't think Austria are going to do a ton of man marking breaking either, but certainly something to watch for and a potential weakness in how the Netherlands approach soccer games. All right. Well, I believe all four of us will be back to review all three of those games tomorrow. But for now, Graham, one last time, any any uh, shade you want to throw at England or Ryan Bailey before we call this one quits? <laughs> Just, um, oh, I don't know. It's overwhelming. There's too many things to throw at them. <laughs> it's really hard because once you start going down the historical route, you'll be here for a while since I always <laughs> go back to that graphic of countries they haven't invaded, which is... Almost hilarious and yet at the same time terrifying. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I should write these down and pin them to the wall so that when you come to me, (laughs) I'm I'm prepared. I mean, it's just too easy with England. There's too much. There's too much to go after. I just always uh, go back to there's the the scene in Parks and Recreation in which they're discussing all of the atrocities committed by the settlers on the native population in the area. There's a big map behind Leslie Nope, and the map is painted in blue, and you see these little white circles that you would assume indicate where the atrocities were committed, and her response is, no, the atrocities are in blue, because they were committed everywhere, and that, that feels like maybe a good note to end on when it comes to England, so I will just throw to Joe to pick up from there. Joe, any final thoughts? <laughs> No, uh, I'm good, Taylor. I don't think I can top that Parks and Rec reference, which was phenomenal. All right. Well, uh, Graham Ruthven, thank you one more time for taking all the time to talk to myself and Ryan Bailey and Joe Lowry today. No problem at all. I am doing an Italian hand gesture right now in tribute to my new favorite team. And they also have the best kit as well. So uh, here's a gesture for you. A good one, a friendly gesture, not one of the nasty ones. This is what I was wondering. It's like, it could be any number of things, Graham, but I, I was going to leave it up to the listener's imagination, but now they have to be limited to it is a positive thing. Joe, any hand gestures for you? Uh, no gestures from me, Taylor. Instead, I will just say thank you for hosting in, in Ryan's absence on this third segment of the show. Uh, it is my pleasure. And as always, near the end of the show, when we've gone long recording, it gets weird. It's kind of my brand. <laughs> listeners, thank you all very much for listening, and we will talk to you all again tomorrow. Tomorrow.